Hello and welcome to episode two of the MJ Cast. It is the 8th of March 2015. My name's Jamin and we have got a phenomenal show planned for you guys today. We're going to be covering some news items such as Michael Jackson's music being celebrated at the Detroit Mosaic Youth Centre concerts, Thriller Live being extended through to April 2016 in London, Michael's mother Catherine taking her wrongful death suit to the California Supreme Court, a new music video leaking online for Michael Jackson and Freddie Mercury, directed by Dave LaChapelle, and also a big discussion into PBS re-airing Motown 25 yesterday, today, and forever. So, welcome to the show. We've got a couple of great, great people on the show today. Obviously, we've got Q, who is our co-host on the MJ cast, and also um, another very, very special guest with us today by the name of Charles Thompson. Now, if you guys don't know who Charles is, I'll just give a bit of a background here. Charles is an award-winning British music journalist. He's written for the Huffington Post, along with a range of other publications. He's interviewed George Clinton, James Brown, and has contributed to two Michael Jackson biographies. Charles, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? Really good. Couldn't be more excited. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for inviting me. Our pleasure. What what time is it in London? Are you, are you in London? You're in. I know you're in Link, England. I'm not in London. I'm a. I'm just outside London, um, and the time is now eleven twelve p.m. Wow, very late for you. <laughs> and the t- the time there is. Uh, here it's nine twelve a.m. on the east coast of Australia. Um, I'm in Queensland, but Q, our co-hosts, all the way over on the on the west side of Australia. What time is it there in Perth, Q? Good morning, gentlemen. It is uh, currently 12 past 7 in the morning, and please excuse me as I'm eating my breakfast and having my cup of tea as we uh, boot up the computers and start our show today. That's all good. Not a problem. So, I mean, let's do a bit of a recap on how we've gone over the last couple of weeks. I mean, Q, we've seen some phenomenal, phenomenal growth of the MJ cast. I mean, I don't think either of us could have predicted you know, what's happened on some of those social networks we're on. I mean, how are you feeling about it all? Um, a little bit overwhelmed. <laughs> I, I can't believe how, how quickly it's um, we've picked up steam and, and the ball is rolling and, and people have been very happy and enjoying the show and very receptive. Um, the numbers, that we're, we're about to hit 1,000 likes on Facebook and that will be very special. Um, yeah, the page has just been growing throughout the week on Facebook and on Twitter uh, we've had some great interaction with fans uh, since our first show, and yeah, I've been very happy and very pleased, especially because it was our first ever go at something like this. We'd never done anything like this before. Absolutely. I just couldn't be more happy either. We've got support flooding in from all around the world. We've, we've received emails from people in Mexico and Spain, all over Europe. It's just... Just mind blowing what's going on. So thank you to our listeners for that. We're also uh, we're also um, on iTunes now as well, uh, which is really exciting. When we when we put out our very first episode, episode one, uh, we weren't yet on iTunes, and people had to stream directly on our website. But we now are on Apple's iTunes platform. Uh, so if you go to our website at themjcast.com, you can hit that big purple button right up the top right. Uh, which says subscribe on iTunes, and then you can you can get us right in your uh, podcast application on your phones. Please make sure if you if you're looking at us on iTunes and our iTunes page to jump on there and do some uh, reviews if you're enjoying our show. We'd love some you know five star ratings here and there. That gives us a lot of visibility in the web. 
so let's get on to our first news item today on the MJ cast, and that is Michael Jackson's music being celebrated at the Detroit Mosaic Youth Center concerts. Uh, there's actually a show happening in Detroit called Make That Change, the music of Michael Jackson. It's going to be playing on March 6th and March 7th, 8 p.m. and 4 p.m. respectively, and features some great things like choral renditions of human nature and choreography to hits like uh, Off the Wall, Thriller, and Beat It. Q, what's, what are your thoughts on this show? Oh, man, there would be an incredible show to see. They uh, Detroit has a very... Uh, almost, almost spiritual music uh, basis for the, for such a uh, a town. Um, you know, Detroit music. They're almost as inseparable as the car industry, and in some ways, a lot more more important. I would believe. Absolutely. I mean, Detroit's got a long, long history in terms of of uh, black music in America. I mean, obviously, that's where. You know, Motown's headquarters is, and it's just, yeah, going to be an incredible, incredible experience if, if people get to go and see that. Charles, what do you think about this? Well, I didn't, I didn't know much about it, but it sounds like a fantastic show. Um, and, of course, you're right, there is the Detroit Motown connection. I'm not sure how much time Michael spent at Motown Detroit, actually. I think um, the bulk of their work was done in Los Angeles, Although I do understand that they recorded some early tunes with Funk Brothers. Um, I'm friends with one of the Funk Brothers, one of the last surviving Funk Brothers. His name is Jack Ashford. He was the percussionist at the Detroit studio. And um, he told me a few years ago that the Funk Brothers did cut a bunch of tracks with the Jackson 5, which were never used. Um, Instead, they were sent down to Los Angeles, and that's where they recorded all of the hits. I don't know if that stuff's ever been put out, actually. I mean, I don't follow all the Motown releases because there's just so many of them. Um, you know, they release hundreds of tracks a year, I think, which are all by all their classic artists, which have never been heard. Um, anyway, I've gone off topic. But, yeah, the shows sound fantastic. Oh, it, it really does. And, I mean, I've, I'm just on the website now and... They've put so much effort into it. The poster, even even the poster looks absolutely incredible. They've got a still shot there of the performers, uh, you know, doing their thing. And uh, I just wish I was living in the U.S. to go and see this. I, I heard somewhere, Q, do you remember how many songs that they're actually going to be doing in the show? It's I I'm trying to get the website up now, but was it 27 or 29? Yeah, I, it's a long show. It's in two parts. Yeah, I think it's around that 27 figure and... Uh, it's it's you know it's a pretty good price as well. I mean, I think for an adult, Very. it's only around twenty four dollars or something like that. But this is the sort of thing that that I get excited about because it's you know keeping Michael Jackson and you know the Jackson family's legacy strong in a positive way. Uh, and and I'd imagine that the performances would be really really excellent as well. So this is definitely something to look out for if you're a fan of music, you're a fan of the Jacksons and and Michael. Uh, and if you're in Detroit, especially, uh, just you know, follow our show notes to log into the to the website to get your tickets. You can actually buy them at mosaicsingers.brownpapertickets.com. That's mosaicsingers.brownpapertickets.com. Uh, but definitely jump on there. Try and try and go to the show. We would love to hear from anybody in Detroit around how this uh, how this show goes. 
there's also some videos on the website from past performances, uh, including a, a highlight reel from a, a Motown 69 concert they did, which the cast is huge for that. They're, at the end of the video, it looks like the entire cast is on stage and it is a massive cast and just the little samples that they were showing uh, of Motown hits. Um, they've got costumes and awesome wigs and everything. It, was, it looks like an incredible theatre group uh, and something very good for the youth of Detroit. Detroit's, uh, as we know, going through very hard times at the moment. Um, it seems all we hear on the news about Detroit is bad news. So able to share something good news um, and something especially good for the youth of Detroit is, is really great. And um, they are talented singers. They're not just singing as if it's like a show like a like something another show thriller live where they they sing uh they actually do different vocal styles as well they sing a classical style of vocal choral arrangement and it's very unique and very incredible so check out videos on their website and they're also on facebook uh, facebook.com slash mosaic detroit absolutely exciting i can't wait to see where that one goes uh you know speaking of other Michael Jackson-related live shows, Thriller Live. This is another big piece of news uh, that's just come out. Uh, Thriller Live has been successful in extending its booking period all the way through to April 2016. Now, I believe this is not so much the international version of the show. I believe that this is the um, the London version that's playing, uh, I think, at West End. Uh, and basically... They've got a few things to be really proud of. I was researching it, and just last month, Thriller Live celebrated the start of a record-breaking seventh year uh, in West End. And on January 25th, uh, I think it's 2,530th show at the Lyric Theatre happened. Uh, It's become the 19th longest-running musical in the history of West End. And on Sunday, April the, the 12th, Thriller Live will overtake Oliver to take the coveted 18th position. So it's had a lot of success. I've got to admit, I have not seen this show. So I'd, I'd love it if you guys could talk a little bit about it. Charles, have you seen Thriller Live? I have seen Thriller Live. Um, I saw it at the Lyric Theatre in the West End, um, I think in 2010. Um, and I was not a particular fan. I've got to be honest, I really, I didn't, I didn't think much of it. Um, it was kind of um, most of the show revolved around sort of young people singing urbanized kind of hip hop street dancey versions of Michael Jackson's songs, right? Um, which I didn't really like. I kind of, I mean, it's difficult. I just, I the thing is with Michael Jackson is that he was so phenomenal that it's just almost impossible for anybody to do justice to his music. Um, And I just really didn't think that the cast was as good as the material. Um, And then, but the worst thing was then, well, the, the the second from top worst thing was that they performed I Just Can't Stop Loving You, which just makes me want to pull my eyes out. (laughs) And and then the absolute worst thing was at the end, they had this impersonator come on and do like two or three songs, like Billie Jean, Smooth Criminal and Thriller or something like that. Um, And he was not singing, he was lip syncing, which in a theatre of that size is immediately apparent. Um, And 
he was wearing a wig with a chin strap. Oh um, no! <laughs> yeah, and it just was not very good. Yeah. Um, I mean, the the music is all performed by a live band. That's great. Um, and there was one guy who was who was there. Who there was one guy in the cast who was a really, really fantastic singer. Um, and whenever he came on, it was like a relief. But the rest of the cast, I just kind of yeah. Anyway, I went for free. Funnily enough, I won the tickets in a competition. Um, so I wasn't too upset, but I, I've never been back. Yeah, I, I I personally haven't seen it. I've heard mixed reviews um, as well. I've heard of other people that have absolutely loved it. Um, Q, you've seen it? I saw, <clears throat> excuse me, I saw the touring version in Perth uh, recently um, in Crown Theatre. And I have a feeling that, since because uh, 2010 is only a couple of years after it began um so when i saw it this year i think it might have changed a little bit it wasn't so much urbanized hip-hop versions of his tracks that were more faithful arrangements to uh the originals um the highlights for me were the, when there was the cast of singers <clears throat> excuse me the cast of singers and they would spread the the duty of singing across like four or five singers um and and to be honest michael's talent was that big that they almost need to do that they need to spread the singing out across multiple singers in the same track even um and for me they were the highlights when when they had like especially uh we had samantha performing the female lead uh when i saw the show and she was uh she was a knockout she was just incredible just gobsmacking incredible uh we had some incredible male talent as well some stronger than others uh my low points for the show were also the um i guess impersonator scenes when there would be an impersonator performing billy jean dangerous smooth criminal those scenes were my low points not because they weren't talented uh and not because they didn't do a great job it's because i just am not one for enjoying impersonator shows i've never enjoyed that kind of thing that's why i enjoyed the thriller live show that i saw because i concentrated more on the the vocal performances and the, the stage performances of the actual hits which were done more as a tribute to michael shared across multiple vocalists which were very good vocalists i i loved the show but my low points were the impersonator sections only because that's not my cup of tea. Well, I guess, yeah, I mean, it sounds like a, at least an entertaining show to see, especially if you're uh, into Michael's music and, uh, you know, vocal talent, if you've seen one of the more recent versions of the show. Uh, I'm, I'm with you guys, I think, in the uh, tribute artist side of things. Like, if I, if I go and see a tribute show uh, with a tribute artist, I know what I'm getting myself into and I know that they're not going to look like Michael and it's not really Michael. And I kind of, you know, suspend my disbelief in that way going into it. Um, but I guess if you're going to see a show that positions itself as a more of a, a varied tribute to Michael with different vocal performances and musical styles, and then a tribute artist comes out during that, I can see why that'd be a little bit, there'd be a disconnect. Yeah, it's definitely uh, probably worth checking out. Uh, Q, you've got a really good review up, I think, of the show. Where can we find that? Uh, that's at DamienShields.com. Oh, yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. So if you go to DamienShields.com uh, and then there's a really long link after that, but <laughs> rather than saying it out, we'll just put it in the show notes. And if you head over there, you'll see a, a review that was written very soon after Q went to see 
the show of Thriller Live, which is uh, quite exciting. Okay, moving on in the news, we've got another item. Uh, Michael's mother, Catherine Jackson, taking her wrongful death suit to the California Supreme Court. So obviously, uh, if you've been following the news at all regarding this topic, uh, obviously, um, Catherine was recently denied a rehearing of her appeal uh, for an original suit that she lost. Uh, and basically, what we've got now is uh, is Catherine taking that, that case, that wrongful death suit, straight to the California Supreme Court to see um, if we can get some, some justice around Michael in that way. So... Charles, you have a bit of a background, I believe, uh, with reporting on on legal matters. What what are your what are your what's your take on this? Um, well, firstly, we must be careful not to fall into the media's trap of continually referring to this as Catherine's lawsuit, because this is a lawsuit which is brought by Catherine and Prince and Paris and Blanket, um, and. What's basically happened is, um, so, Catherine and the kids filed a lawsuit a couple of years ago against AEG saying that AEG uh, should share some of the responsibility for Michael's death with Conrad Murray, um, primarily because they had hired uh, Murray, but also because they had failed to, um, uh, failed to administer a duty of care. Um, when the case started going through the court system, the judge um, removed most of the facets of their case, including duty of care, and told Catherine and the kids that they could only pursue the angle that AG had negligently hired the doctor. Um, so basically, they went through a protracted trial um, during which all of this unbelievably shocking and disturbing information was made public about the way that the AEG executives have been treating Michael, have been talking about Michael, etc. Um, but when it came down to the issue of whether AEG had negligently hired the doctor, um, the jurors decided that they had not. They, decide, they decided that AEG had hired Murray, but they decided that they had not hired him negligently. What happened was that after that verdict came in, the jurors gave a public statement outside the courthouse and they said that they had followed the judge's instructions in how to reach a decision on this question. And they felt that they had nowhere to go but to find that the, uh, the doctor was competent because he was a trained doctor and he had uh, a medical degree. Now, as I said in something I posted on the internet a few weeks ago, by that logic, Dr. Harold Shipman was a, a competent doctor. Um, so the Jackson's lawyers uh, contacted some of the jurors and obtained sworn statements by some of the jurors in which they said that they had wanted to find AEG culpable, but felt that the judge's instructions were so limiting um, that they were unable to do so. They felt that as long as they accepted under the judge's instructions that the doctor had been trained as a doctor, that meant that they were unable to find that uh, he had behaved negligently. And I, I, I am of the opinion that he was negligent and that he was negligently hired. And I can go into that if you will, if you want me to in a moment. But um, anyway, so Catherine took the case to the appeal court 
and the appeal court turned down her um, request for an appeal. And uh, her lawyer, Kevin Boyle, put out a statement. He said um, that they uh, they had missed the point. He said the Court of Appeals missed the point. And uh, I was looking into this. If you look online, you can find a story by the New York Daily News, which appears to have had a reporter in court. And that story says the appellate court justices questioned Thursday how AEG could have known that Murray was giving Jackson secret propofol infusions to treat his insomnia behind locked doors. Um, so when he says that the Court of Appeals missed a point, I can see what he means. The issue that the Jacksons were taking to the appeals court was not um, whether AEG should have known that the doctor was administering propofol. Of course, he couldn't have. Uh, they couldn't have done. Um, it was they were appealing the judges' decisions. The judges' decisions, firstly, to remove duty of care um, as an issue in the case. And secondly, the judge's instructions to the jury and how to uh, arrive at a verdict. So um, Catherine's lawyers are of the opinion that the justices missed the point of the appeal. Yeah. And so they're taking it to the Supreme Court. Well, I think that's a great comprehensive summary of kind of where we're up to with this uh, with this case. And I mean, I'm I guess I mean, as a fan and I can't really talk from a deep legal perspective about this, but I can say as a fan of Michael Jackson and kind of knowing some of those facts that came out during the uh, the original trial, I, I couldn't. I'm very, I'm very satisfied that 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 Michael's mother and and his children are pursuing this further. Uh, I think it would be an injustice if it wasn't carried through to the uh, to the Supreme Court. Q, are you of a similar mind on that, or? Um, yes, uh, yeah, definitely. I, I, I do. I remember correctly, Charles, that the jurors only got really to answer maybe up to two questions when they were deliberating, and at that point, because they answered a certain question that way, their deliberations were final and finished and they couldn't answer any of the other questions? That's absolutely correct, yes. And that's yeah. why they felt that they wanted to uh, AEG to be found liable, but because they had answered a question a certain way, that was it and it was over and done and they, they weren't able to go any further because, yes, they had answered that he was a competently hired doctor so it was, it was oh, I, would, I don't want to say a trap, but it was very, yeah, the legal process is obviously, you know, you have to follow, there's no grey, it's black and white, and they followed the procedure and that's what happened. And I don't think that was a fair ruling in the end. Now, this is just a, the California Supreme Court, isn't it? Yes. So that's the highest for that state. Is there anything else that could happen in the legal system other than just a state-based lawsuit? That I don't know. To be perfectly honest, I'm, I'm a court reporter in England, but I'm not overly familiar with the US system. Which I believe is probably very different. <laughs> yeah. So, no, I, I don't know. Okay. and, and I'm, sure there, the, the, I'm sure there is a US Supreme Court, actually, isn't there? I'm sure I there is. I think there is, yeah. yeah. I don't think something like this would reach that level, though. And, and I believe that the press are, as usual, in, inaccurate in reporting that this is a billion-dollar lawsuit. Was there any truth to those outlandish numbers? Um, I believe that they were um, pursuing damages and that there was an expert who had compiled a report 
um, based on Michael Jackson's earning potential, his prospective um, life expectancy had he not been killed by the uh, doctor and so on, and that the amount that um, the expert arrived at was something in the region of a billion dollars, or possibly even more. But um, when it actually came to court, and Catherine's lawyers were making the argument for damages, they didn't go anywhere near uh, the billion dollar figure. So it seemed to have been a kind of a, a case of selective um, use of figures by the press. Yeah, I do remember that figure being thrown around a lot and it kind of being dwelled on by the press, especially here in Australia. Anytime you'd see anything on the news to do with the lawsuit, it was always like a billion dollars, a billion dollars. And they were, it was almost like they were making it out to be unfair that Michael's family were um, suing for that amount. Well, well, that's that pretty is, typical. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there, there is a, a decades-long campaign by the media at large um, to portray Michael Jackson's family as crooked, as thieves, as greedy, as callous, um, as not caring about him, trying to steal his money, so on and so forth. Um, and that actually, I believe, is why they constantly dissociate his children from this lawsuit, because the media, in my opinion, has created a kind of a narrative um, in which all of Michael Jackson's older black relatives are tarred as kind of thieves and charlatans. And then his children are shown in a completely different context um, and so they constantly separate the children from this lawsuit, even though they've been very clearly in favour of it, spoken publicly in favour of it, and so on. Um, it seems to be all part of this agenda that they have. And this bandying about of the billion dollar figure, it's, it's intentional. It's to make the Jacksons look greedy and unreasonable, I believe. I, that is completely accurate. And as always with your writing and reporting, Charles, you've, you've worded that perfectly. And, and I would hope to the majority of uh, Michael Jackson fans out there that that would be plainly obvious. Um, yeah, it's disgusting the way they portray, they portray the family uh, and especially poor Mother Catherine, who Michael adored and that was plainly obvious in anything that he had to say or write about his own mother and, and the rest of his family as well. He had a terrific relationship with his father as well. And and the brothers, I think, have been very unfairly. And even Janet, has she's quite self-sufficient in her life and career and they even tar her with the same feather and it's disgusting behaviour. And I would hope that other fans can see that as well. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And Charles, that was just a great opinion there you've given. I, you know, that's, uh, that's why I go back and read your writing. I remember, I remember probably the first encounter that I ever had with your writing was that article you released, uh, one of the most shameful episodes in journalistic history, uh, which is, I think you published that on the Huffington Post on the 13th of June, 2010. Yeah, the five-year anniversary of the verdict, yeah. Can I say as a fan, Charles, that thank you so much for that um, that piece. It's an incredible piece, and I'd read that way back in 2010, um, and I've shared it many times since, and it's a very important piece for everyone to have read and to, to have that clarity of what happened during that horrendous trial and the behaviour of the media and their motives behind their behaviour um, 
there was an incredible piece. You you are an incredible writer, and you you're not just writing um, from hearsay. You are writing from facts, which is plainly obvious when you look at the uh, the transcripts of the trial and the evidence that was presented, which was ridiculous evidence and should never have gone to trial. Um, so thank you as a fan for writing that, and I can assure you that. Um, we will have that in the show notes and anyone that hasn't read it, you should read it and you should share it around because it is an important piece um, from a very a very good writer and a, a very good journalist. So thank you for that. Well, thank you very much. I mean, it's um, incredible to me really because uh, uh, I wrote it and nobody knew who I was really. And it just blew up because you know what Michael's fan community is like, you know, it's, it's huge. But um Every year now, since on the anniversary of the verdict, I get emails pouring into my inbox from fans who are reading it for the first time, where it gets reshared every year. Absolutely. And um, it's just uh, amazing to me. I mean, I never thought um, that it would be so widely read. And the other thing is that I didn't really, I didn't really write it for Michael Jackson fans, because to an extent, they really knew everything that's in that article already. I was hoping to reach people who didn't really have much idea of what happened in the courtroom. I don't know how successful I was in that. Well, I'm looking at the stats now on the Huffington Post website, and it's done very well. 5.4 thousand likes, uh, 1,197 tweets about it, 827 comments just on the blog post. So I'd say it's uh, done very, very well. Oh, actually, I was quite annoyed with that, because that should be higher. Well, <laughs> that, um, what happened was it had like 10,000 tweets, um, and then it got wiped back to zero what? and started... It, the counter reset. <laughs> yeah, I was really irritated. I sent them an email, but they never answered. Well, of course not. You actually won a award just in the last couple of weeks for print journalist, a regional print journalist of the year award, didn't you, Charles? I did. Yeah, I won. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. That was um, a nice surprise. Yeah, we, I, I won um, weekly print journalist of the year. Phenomenal. And they were um, incredible articles as well. Uh, Bureaucracy Gone Insane, and uh, School Sex Abuse Shock. You've, you've covered a lot of very heavy cases in the media and also court cases, um, including a lot of child sex abuse cases. Yeah, I have. Th I can't, thank you very much for, for reading those, because normally um, Michael Jackson fans just like they have no awareness of anything else that I've ever done. Um, I think it's important to know that Charles isn't just a Michael Jackson reporter at all. And like you said, you didn't even write that piece for Michael Jackson fans back in 2010. Um, you've, you've covered um, many sort of big cases throughout the UK and of, of police and um, pedophiles and doctors and uh, even church child sex scandals. So you've covered some very big cases and um, yeah, I think people should recognise that you have reported on other things just about a Michael Jackson case in, in the 2000s. Yeah, I mean, I've covered a lot of um, uh, pedophilia and uh, child abuse cases. And if anything, being in those cases, which have included cases where the perpetrator was guilty, but also have included cases 
where the accuser had fabricated the accusations. I do believe that um, reporting on those cases has had quite a, an impact on my understanding and interpretation of the Michael Jackson trial as well. Um, so I'm not necessarily coming at the Michael Jackson trial as a fan or just as a fan. I'm coming at it as somebody who has spent a lot of time in courtrooms listening to these kind of accusations playing themselves out. And um, it's only reinforced my opinion, really, that the not guilty verdicts were absolutely merited. And with this current AEG uh, lawsuit uh, from um, the family, what do you think the chances are of any um, for for the case to go further than what it did before? Like the last trial was eighty nine days long, I believe. Uh, what do you think the chances are for this the new filing for this case? I believe it will be turned down. Um, I have no confidence in the system to do the right thing. I mean, it should tell you something about the American system, really. I mean, it just, I couldn't believe it. When they initially filed their appeal, the judge who decided whether they were allowed to have an appeal was the judge whose decisions they were complaining about. It was the trial judge. I mean, that is insanity, isn't it? It's like asking a police officer to investigate an allegation about their own conduct. It's just or madness. it is like uh, someone who works for a company and then being part of an estate that then works with that company. Maybe some sort of conflict of interest. Yeah. <coughs> Sony. Yeah, <coughs> Sony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, no, it's a total conflict of interest. I mean, it's, it's lunacy to me, and I'm sure that that would not be able to happen in the British system. Um, and uh, I've I must be careful not to suggest that there is any intentional um, uh, covering up of uh, the establishment's mistakes by the establishment. But what I can say is that wittingly or unwittingly, um, I do believe that the establishment, not just in America, but generally um, wherever you go, the establishment's default position is to protect itself. Uh, I mean, for instance, I covered the case of um, Troy Davis when he was about to be executed and all of this evidence was pouring out that he was innocent. Um, he was convicted of murdering a police officer, uh, shooting him on the basis of about eight different eyewitnesses who testified against him. Um, and all of them except one recanted and said that they'd been bullied into giving this testimony by the police. And the one that didn't, several other witnesses came forward and said that he had confessed to them that he was the real shooter. Um, and so Troy Davis was begging for a lie detector test in the days before his execution, uh, and they refused to give it to him. They refused to let him take a lie detector test, and then they killed him. Um, and in that situation, you're saying, well, what were they scared of? Why would they refuse him that? If they believe he's guilty, why not just let him make a fool of himself before they execute him? Um, and so I, the, the American establishment, as, as everywhere else, has a tendency to uh, try to cover for itself, I think. Whether that is an intentional cover-up or whether it is an assumption on its own part that it is unlikely to have made a mistake. 
Um, so when you're asking a panel of judges to decide whether another judge has made a mistake, I think the likelihood of you getting a ruling that goes in your favor, favor is always going to be slim. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would be very surprised if Catherine and the kids were granted an appeal or a second trial or anything of that nature. Yeah. Um, although I do believe that it would be merited. I I mean I hope it goes to trial. I mean the original they're they're actually saying that the original lawsuit trial judge incorrectly dismissed negligence and employment claims and allowed the jury to receive a faulty jury verdict form. So why they're they're actually taking this uh, trial to the Supreme Court not really on the basis of what the jury found as being you know false, but more on the fact that the original trial was unfair in the first place because of what you said earlier about the negligence and employment claims not being a part of the trial. Yeah, the judge narrowed the case to such an extent that basically the trial hinged on the jurors having to determine that Conrad Murray was incompetent at the moment he was hired. I am of the opinion that he was incompetent, and Randy Phillips is of the opinion that he was incompetent if we take his logic at face value. Randy Phillips sent an email to Kenny Ortega when Kenny Ortega was complaining, well, not complaining, but raising concerns about Michael's health. And Phillips wrote, this doctor is extremely successful. We check everyone out and does not need this gig. So he is totally unbiased and unethical. In my opinion, that is an acknowledgement by an AEG boss that if a doctor that they hired and the jury found that AEG did hire the doctor, if a doctor that they hired had money problems or was dependent on the income from this job, then he would be compromised and maybe in a position where he would be pressured into giving um, inappropriate care. Uh, so Phillips acknowledges that this is a potential problem and then says, we check everyone out. This doctor is extremely successful. We check everyone out. He's acknowledging there that there is a potential problem here in hiring a doctor, and he is proposing a solution. And then AG uh, does not does not act on its own advice. Philip says that they've checked him out, but they haven't. And had they checked him out, they would have discovered that the exact problem that Phillips is anticipating is present. Murray has got debts up to his eyeballs, and he's absolutely dependent on this gig. Um, so I am of the opinion that that is tantamount to an admission by Randy Phillips that they should have carried out a background check and that they didn't. And that, to me, would be negligent hiring of the doctor. As to whether Murray was negligent, I think his actions speak for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm even of the opinion that AEG were negligent. Um, not just with considering Murray to be um, competent or not, but just in their behaviour during the rehearsals. They knew Michael's condition was worsening to a critical point. That was obvious. That's evident in the fact that Randy was visiting Michael's house and putting him under extreme pressure to perform, um, yet continued. Their client was in a critical condition. They knew he was, yet they continued to pressure him to perform. And that that in itself to me is... Um, an extreme situation of negligence in terms of duty of care. I think also regardless of whatever happens with this case, the, the evidence that came out in the original trial uh, from 
from people like uh, Kenny Ortega, Randy Phillips, AEG, Karen Fay, and the family, people that had said a lot of things um, after This Is It um, in defense of Michael saying this was happening in the background and people dismissed their claims and called them crazy and worse. All of those people's claims were proven correct in a horrific fashion with the evidence that came out during that trial. And whatever happens in the trial, that evidence that came out is out there and should should not be ignored. And people like Karen Fay, Jermaine and Joe and Catherine and people that had made those claims and that were rubbished in the media and by fans even and continue to be by this day by a small group of fans, they should look at that evidence and should know that those people were vindicated when those claims were made. Well, I actually, on the day of the verdict, when I heard that a verdict had been reached, but we were waiting to to hear it, um, I telephoned a member of the Jackson family, who I won't name, um, and said, how are you feeling? And they said, oh, you know, I'm fine. I said, my God, you sound calmer than me. What's wrong? (laughs) You know, how are you? And they said, look, man, it's not about the money for us. You know, for us, the most important thing is that we put those emails in the public domain. You know, I mean, I've described it before and I'll stand by it as I think this trial was one of the greatest, if not the greatest expose of the music industry that the world has ever seen. You have emails back and forth where they're discussing uh, lying to Michael Jackson about how much money he's going to earn because they don't think he'll agree to do the shows if they tell him how much he's actually going to make. You have emails where they're tricking him into thinking that he's doing less work than he is. You have emails where they're calling him a freak, where they keep referring to him as Mikey, like a little boy. This is the the co-owner of Sony Music Publishing, and they're talking about him like an imbecile. You have the emails where Randy Phillips is saying, "Um, I just screamed at him so loud the walls are shaking. I just slapped him and screamed at him louder than I screamed at Arthur Castle. Uh, Tomei and I just threw him in a shower. You have emails where Kenny Ortega... Kenny Ortega writes to Phillips. He says, Michael Jackson is weak and fatigued, suffering from chills, trembling, ranting, obsessing, needs psychological evaluation, is terribly frightened, is begging, is like a lost boy, is lost and incoherent. He needs to be fed. He needs to be wrapped in blankets. We're calling the doctor. And you have Randy Phillips writing back saying, stop playing amateur doctor and get on with your job. I mean, the whole thing is a disgrace. It's a shocking, disgusting disgrace. And the Jackson family exposed that. Um, and the the fans or uh, people who uh, pose as fans in some cases, I believe, uh, who at- attack Catherine and Michael's children for bringing this lawsuit, it's... It's willful ignorance, willful ignorance, because there is no justification imaginable for what we learned in that lawsuit. There is no justification for it. You cannot shrug it off. You cannot explain it away. It is a disgrace. The way this man was treated in the last months of his life is a disgrace. And Catherine and Michael's children should be commended 
um, and applauded for bringing this lawsuit, if only for the fact that it exposed this information. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I just, you know, I, I what I want to see one day is all of this information put into some kind of book, like, an, you know, a, a book that any fan, any person in the world can go back and read, including all the information from the child transcripts, the just the, the you know, interviews with, with um, people involved, just a go-to piece about the truth behind why Michael Jackson died in 2009. I would love to would, see something like that. That would be a very big book. It would be huge. I mean, you'd have to start way back. I mean, this is, you know, this is, uh, Michael, you know, this is something that began a long time before it ended, you know. Well, and, and thanks to Catherine and Michael's children, you can now write that book because all of these emails and all of that testimony is a matter of public record. And as a journalist, you have protection against libel action when you report on anything which has been discussed or presented in open court. So what uh, Catherine and the children have done by bringing this lawsuit is they have given immunity to any journalist now who wants to write this book. Even if the estate wants to try to stop them, there's nothing it can do. And the same goes for AEG. All of this stuff is public record, public domain. Um, So again... Catherine and the children need to be commended for uh, their work in making this public because uh, it's it's the only way, really, this information could ever have been uh, legitimately reported. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I completely support the family in this and, and commend them also. And, and for Mother Catherine to be going through this at her age and when she's got plenty of other responsibilities that she should be worried about is um, her, a testament to her strength and, um, yeah, an incredible woman. Uh, thank you so much for your um, your for joining us for this show uh, today, Charles, because especially for this topic, uh, your expertise was uh, far more than what we could have ever brought to the table. So, um, yeah, big thank you for helping us out with, especially for that topic. Thank you. I'll batten down the hatches now and await the death threat avalanche. (laughs) (laughs) We've got your back, Charles. We've got your back. The thing is, on the MJ cast, you know, we... We do like to have lighthearted discussion and, and talk about some, you know, interesting, fun topics. Uh, but at the same time, we can't ignore the truth behind what's going on um, in in the darker side of of uh, being a Michael Jackson fan. You know, obviously the tri- this trial and other trials that are happening around Michael right now. Um, you know, there is there is a, a darker tone to those, and I think it's important that we discuss them properly uh, in depth. Uh, and, you know, by looking at all the different sides. So thank you, Charles. It's really, really appreciated. Um, so let's move on to our next topic. This one's, we're going <laughs> to lighten it up a little bit here, but this one's a bit more of a, uh, a fun topic. Uh, something interesting's really, really happened over the last seven days. Uh, it's not every day this happens, uh, but we have received, uh, through a leak actually, not an official release, a new music video which features vocals from Michael Jackson and also another superstar, Freddie Mercury. Uh, this is a music video that has been directed by Dave LaChapelle, uh, and uh, it's leaked out onto the internet. Uh, it was uh, a song that is called There Must Be More to Life Than This that came out on the Queen Forever album in November 2014. Uh, we had a great article published about 
this particular uh, music video and song by none other than Damien Shields, uh, which came out a few days ago. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. You can access it on DamienShields.com. But he talks all about this incredible video that was actually shot on Maui uh, in Hawaii and stars Ukrainian ballet dancer Sergei Palunin and Australian model Jessica Gomez. Uh, Basically, uh, Damien commented that La Chapelle's effort is worlds above previously released posthumous videos that Jackson's estate and Epic Records have issued on behalf of the King of Pop as far as quality and vision and would certainly be worthy of an official single release. I personally couldn't agree more. I've watched the video. I absolutely loved it. Um, And I want to hear what you guys have to think. Q, what, what did you think of the video? It was very moving it was um it was a beautiful piece and i'm just going at this point just touching on the actual visuals of the video it's a stunning piece of film um the the cast is incredible that the uh, the dancer and um that his movements are something spiritual uh it's got a lot of layers to this video it's a really fine visual piece um the song itself i loved i've had that leak for many years um like a demo version with freddie mercury and michael jackson um it's a it's a beautiful song and and it's quite when you think of the song and the lyrics and how beautiful the song is you would never have thought of a piece this heavy uh and dark or in some ways dark but in other ways very light you would never have thought of a piece like this and yet here it is it's the perfect marriage it's a it's an incredible piece and yes it is far far light years ahead of anything that the estate and have put out and i'm wondering why this was leaked and not officially released as it should have been because it is an incredible piece um no uh, dave le chapelle did a beautiful job um and I, like the vocals are incredible anyway. I don't know how I've never become obsessed with Freddie Mercury as well. He was an incredible artist. And I don't know, there's just a few artists that I've come across. And I'm like, why am I not equally obsessed with Freddie Mercury? He, he was an incredible artist and I'd love to know more about him. And I have watched a few documentaries and interviews and got into a little bit of the work. But to have these two titans on uh, album together like this song is is a very momentous moment in history and this video should be out there so more people can appreciate the song but also the beautiful film definitely charles have you had a chance to watch the video yet or i have i think the video is fantastic um as q said i think it's very moving uh very tasteful very high-end um, everything which is not applicable to the other posthumous videos that we've seen so far. Um, I thought Hollywood Tonight was a particular low point. Um, here we have a song about a uh, a very dark, disturbing song about a teenage girl who wants to become an actress and goes to Hollywood and ends up being an underage prostitute. And the estate's video is of a a young girl sort of dancing down the street looking like she couldn't be happier, sort of um, cuddling a lamppost. <laughs> they, they turned it into a Glee episode almost. Basically. It was um, demented, that video. <laughs> but um, That's a good the... word to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the I mean, uh, I'm really not a fan of all these um, 
unfinished, unreleased songs being uh, sort of half finished by someone else and then released. I've never been a particular fan of this song. Um, it's okay, but it just sounds to me like Michael Jackson putting down a demo vocal. It doesn't sound like um, a finished song to me, you know, so it kind of, I have mixed feelings about it because I do think that the video is really genuinely fantastic, but the song to me does not match the quality of the video. Um, and I also think that the snippet of Michael Jackson vocal that they've chosen to use is not the best snippet they could have taken from the overall recording. Um, so, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't know where I stand on it, really. Uh, I mean, I, I do like the video, but I'm, I do remain um, opposed uh, for reasons explicitly expressed and described by Michael Jackson himself before he died to this constant remixing and releasing of his unfinished material. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on the note of uh, of the music uh, in terms of its, you know, coming out without, you know, Michael's approval and definitely unfinished, absolutely. I actually don't have much of a problem with hearing Michael's work in progress demos as a fan. I'm I'm very interested in the artist as well as the art. I what I have a problem is is when unfinished demos are remixed and then released as if they were finished products because I feel like that's positioning uh, Michael's, you know, um, less than complete work as complete work. And I th- uh, just I, that has never sat right with me at all. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if they were to put out a collection that was called the Michael Jackson Demo Collection and it was a collection of demos which had not been touched then it would be a niche product. Only Michael Jackson fans would buy that, but I would not have a problem with that because it's clearly labelled as what it is. But the um, constant releasing of this material, which has been remixed, and in some cases bears almost no resemblance at all to Michael Jackson's own vision for the track, um, I just find... Uh, quite offensive in a way because what they're doing is they are um, destroying his discography. I mean, one of the most incredible um, discographies ever. I mean, it was small. Michael Jackson was a solo artist for however many years, 79 to 2009, an adult solo artist and only put out seven albums. But that catalogue was almost unassailable. I mean, there was some... You know, there was I Just Can't Stop Loving You, which, you know, was regrettable. But the the catalogue as a whole, I mean, to have that hit rate, that level of quality, you know, Michael Jackson's discography was unassailable. He was a solo artist for, as an adult from 79 to 2009. And in that time, he only put out seven albums. But those seven albums were of such incredible quality, but for... I just can't stop loving you um, and the lost children uh, that, you know, I mean, it was, it was just the most solid, um, incredible discography imaginable, really. And um, what they're doing is they're flooding the market with subpar material that he chose not to release because he knew it was subpar. And if they keep doing this over the years, then eventually we will reach a tipping point where the amount of subpar material will outweigh the good 
Um, and it's irresponsible, I think, and particularly when they're marketing this material as though it were finished. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure that when the Michael album was released, um, they were kind of claiming that this was something approaching what he would have put out had he been alive. That's right. And they, it's just shocking. It's, it's one of the worst albums I've ever heard. It's appalling. They actually it's put t- out... I mean, it's, sorry, they, the documentary they released about it, they, they made a making of the Michael album documentary, Sony Music did. You can watch it on YouTube. We'll put a link in the show notes to it. But in that, they claimed that Michael Jackson left a roadmap of material that he wanted to release. And, he, and uh, they were trying to follow that roadmap. Now, what's funny is that that's to a certain extent true michael did leave a roadmap not of the album that he wanted to bring out but of the songs that he wanted to complete and that roadmap was a, i think it was a handwritten note that was uh, stuck up on a wall in the bedroom um that he actually passed away in uh but yeah. the 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 songs that are on that roadmap the songs that michael jackson wanted to complete are so very very different to what's on that that first posthumous album it's it's not even funny and i'm of the opinion like if if i and i know we can speculate all day about what we had have done would have done if we were running the estate and all that kind of thing but i think it was probably a good idea for them to bring out one posthumous album with those songs that michael was focused on or something like that but the, the fact that they just keep releasing things and and are on this trajectory of seemingly never-ending releases of subpar material you're right it's never going to stop and it's going to dilute his um his overall uh, catalog and I, I just wish that they would put out the unfinished material respectfully uh and we got uh you know the latest album escape i think that was good that they put out those unfinished uh demos as the second disc but to me they should have been the priority not the remixes Oh, I agree 100%. And it's kind of um, distressing that you had to pay extra for a deluxe edition to get the demos because the only people that are going to buy that are hardcore fans, which means the majority of the audience will only hear the hideous remixes. Um, If the estate was as concerned with Michael's roadmaps that he left behind, as they claimed when they were releasing the Michael album, then they should also have followed the roadmap he left about how he wanted to release his music, uh, his future music. Um, he had a little career map drawn out on a piece of paper on his desk when he died, and it said that he wanted to release his new album uh, with either Universal or Virgin, um, no mention of Sony. So it's interesting that the estate picks and chooses which roadmaps Michael left behind it wants to follow. Um, but you're correct in that the uh, the roadmap that he did leave behind for material, um, I think, contained probably only one song that actually appeared on the uh, Michael album, which was Hollywood Tonight. I think it also um, had Best of Joy, maybe. Oh, Best of Yeah, you're correct. Yeah, Best of Joy. Interestingly, none of the Casio songs. Yes. That's a whole other Oprah show. Absolutely. We'll get, we will get to that. We will get to that in a different show. We actually, uh, uh, as you might know already, Charles, we, um, yeah, we're going to cover that in a future topic, maybe in one of our shows coming up soon. But, yeah, no, it is a very, very fascinating topic that we're going we're gonna to talk about soon. Which we would like, okay. if possible, to have all sides contribute to that discussion. 
Oh boy, I don't know if I can handle that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's going to be very interesting. Uh, we actually have been we have been talking with um, Eddie Cassio, where we're hoping to get him on the show up in the in the coming episodes to maybe address some of those topics. So it will be interesting to hear what uh, he has to say around the controversy as well. Yeah, while he's on, you should ask him what happened to all the handwritten lyrics and the other evidence that Roger Friedman said he was going to produce uh, in support of those songs, because Roger Friedman kind of promised us that the Casios were going to present that when they appeared on Oprah, and then they appeared on Oprah and presented no evidence at all. So it'd be interesting to know what happened to all that. Yeah, there's... we'll add that. We'll add that to, to the. Yeah. We'll add that to the list of questions. There's de- we've got a whole list of questions, and they're definitely some of the things we want to be asking Eddie when he's on the show. Um, our next uh, major topic that we might talk about is uh, our major topic of discussion for today, and it's a big piece of news for the Michael Jackson fan community. Uh, recently, an American TV station, PBS, has re-aired the seminal Michael Jackson performance uh, where he moonwalked and performed Billie Jean for the very, very first time uh, within a re-airing of the, the entire show of Motown 25, Yesterday, Today and Forever. Uh, incredible, incredible piece of news that they, that, that they re-aired this for the first time in full uh, in 2015, 2015, sorry Q, I know you like it when I say 2015, not 2015. Uh, I just, I just, I'm blown away. I'm so happy that they re-aired this. This is exactly what I want as a Michael Jackson fan. I want Michael's original performances, his, these huge historical moments to come out in the best quality they can. And that's exactly what's happened. Uh, have you guys seen, um, have you, have either of you watched the full version of, of Motown 25? I have not. I tried finding uh, the full version online, um, and I have not. And I don't have the uh, the DVD that was released. I think possibly a few years ago, the Motown Twenty Five Yesterday, Today, Forever uh, collection uh, set. I and which are currently out of stock on Amazon. Um, I have not seen the full show. I did watch a few little snippets uh, of different acts, uh, like highlight things, uh, and I did watch the entire. Jackson's performance, which then led into Michael's solo Billie Jean performance. Um, from what I can, and and everyone, like this isn't just billed as a Michael Jackson show. It was a huge turning point uh, in his career uh, and trajectory. But um, the show itself had countless legends that we would be here for all episode just listing them because of the history of Motown uh, and the small snippets I saw of other acts was amazing. And it is on a to get list for me because not just because of the Michael aspect, but also the uh, other legendary performers and performances and reunions that occurred in this historic um, TV moment. Yeah, it's, it was just brilliant, you know, and you summed it up great by saying it's a historic TV moment because it absolutely was for so many reasons. And, you know, a lot of Michael Jackson fans focus on this show simply because of the Michael Jackson performance in it and the Jackson's performance, but there's so much more in the show that, that needs mentioning. Uh, it's, it was just incredible. Charles, have you seen the whole thing? I've not. I, I've, it's a, an irritating situation because the DVD came out a few months ago and I bought it um, under the impression that I had a multi-region DVD player, oh. um, only to discover that I don't. So I have a, um, a three-disc Motown 25 set at the moment that I can't you watch. You can't even watch it. <laughs> um, 
No, Torture. No, I think I think I can watch it on um, an Xbox or something if I can get get access to that for more than ten minutes. But um, I mean, the the Motown Twenty Five is an interesting one because it's fraught with all kinds of politics, Motown politics. You know, people that were excluded and all kinds of stuff, which is a whole other issue, but it's very interesting. But um, for me, as regards Michael's performance on Motown 25, the real highlight is um, the, the performance with his brothers. Uh, the Billy Jean performance, to me, I acknowledge is a fantastic dance performance, but I do have a pathological hatred of lip-syncing. Um, and so for me, I, it's just not that impressive. When I watch, when I watch it back, and people are raving about it, I just give yeah, it. It's just Michael Jackson pretending to sing Billie Jean. I, I don't. It doesn't really chime with me in the way that it does many people. Um, whereas I think that performance with his brothers is just phenomenal. The choreography, the vocal, the live band. I just love it. Uh, and having having them all there as well, like they they start with the original lineup, and then Randy comes out, and it's all of the brothers. Yeah, it's I love that moment. It is a terrific performance with the brothers. Oh, it's so good. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely share your opinion, Charles, on on lip syncing. I I um, you know, I mean, more from the point of view that I think Michael is a phenomenal live vocalist, and anytime he anytime he doesn't sing live has me feel like I just just want to hear the man sing live, you know, mistakes and all. I don't care. He's just so good at what he does. Uh, but so, yeah, I mean, the fact that it wasn't live singing, yes, there is that element in there. Um, however, on the other hand, the thing that appealed to me the most about it was the fact, and uh, I think I wrote this to Q the other day straight after I watched it, but it was more just the fact that Michael had performed this incredible set uh in front of all of his peers, in front of all of the people in his life at Motown that mer- that sort of nurtured him on his journey towards becoming the king of pop. And, you know, it's, it's almost like it was, su- it's like a microcosm. It's a transitionary point in Michael's career because you've got him performing with his brothers for the first part of, of his performance, which is incredible. But then there's this incredible theatrical interlude where he talks about just wanting, you know, to perform the new songs, puts the hat on, does Billie Jean, and then just that, you know, of course, the moonwalk, but then, the, then his look. It's more his look at the end of his Billie Jean performance on his face when he just closes his eyes, his fist is in the air, and, you know, he just, it's, it's as if he's, he's, he doesn't have to say it at all, but his look is saying, you know, I made it, you know, this is, this is me, I've done it. Um, and, and to me, like, it is just this moment where he realizes that he is the king of pop. I don't know. I don't, that's just how it reads to me. And, you know, the, the audience is full of these incredible performers and, and, and people that, that worked at Motown and they're all on their feet, standing ovation. And it's just, I don't know, it just tugs at my heartstrings, I guess. I think it's interesting where when they, often when they show the footage of the crowd reactions, they show a few reactions of people like there's a, a young uh, young boy who is like jumping out of his yeah. chair and he's just ecstatic. And that actually wasn't in reaction to Michael's Billie Jean performance. That was actually in reaction to the Jacksons as a group performance. So they often use a lot of the crowd reactions from uh, when all the brothers are together and how awesome that was 
they sort of edit that, not not in the actual broadcast, but in highlight packages, they edit that to make it appear as they're reacting to when Michael is doing Billie Jean. So from us looking retrospectively back, it's hard not to concentrate on the Billie Jean performance, but I think the Jackson's performance was at the time such a huge moment for for the, for the Jacksons themselves and for Motown that and because they were such a, a staple for for a lot of the people growing up at that time and to have them as um, brothers reunited on stage for that performance was a huge thing and and it's sad that now looking back sort of the Jacksons history has sort of been somewhat forgotten or ignored when it shouldn't be because uh, as equal to Diana Ross and the Supremes and um, Stevie Wonder and a lot of the other Motown artists, their history was just as important and they were very successful. Well, yeah, I mean, um, the Jackson's albums, for me, are among the greatest Michael Jackson albums ever released. And I certainly would take Triumph and Destiny over some of his adult solo output, um, like Invincible. So, you know, and actually he had more writing input on those albums than he did on albums like Off the Wall and Thriller. Yes. They are terrific albums and they've had some terrific re-releases in the last few years as well. Yeah, the, the latest versions of them sound great. I think there was a set that came out. I can't remember when it was, but it was, I think, just prior to his death, maybe in the late 2000s, where all of those albums, uh, oh, sorry, not all of them, but Destiny, Triumph, and I think Victory uh, all came out as re-releases that had been digitally remastered and that the, the notable increase in audio quality was just phenomenal. Yeah, definitely worth looking for. You can get a little set or even um, uh, individual re-releases in the last few years. They're definitely worth adding to your collection because the quality is incredible. Yeah. Um, no, they're great albums. There's some real gems on those albums and and it's I think some fans concentrate on the adult solo career from Thriller onwards. Yes. There were there were so many eras in Michael Jackson and it didn't just start with Off the Wall. There was the whole J5 era which went for a very long time and there is a massive catalog and then after that there was a Jackson's era which was also a huge era, very long with a very vast catalogue of of hits and records and yeah they're worth adding to your collection and they stand up a hell of a lot better than what's playing on the radio these days absolutely i i i almost like to think of the beginning of michael's adult artistic and independence probably not so much as off the wall but more destiny uh you know like there were a couple of jackson's albums that came out before that like the jackson's self-titled album and then uh going places but it's really when you get to Destiny that you start to see the brothers and also Michael almost completely creatively in control of their work at that point. And uh, it's, it's, they're just phenomenal records to hear, groundbreaking stuff. And the releases from those uh, earlier years, the Jackson 5 re-releases and collections that are being put out now and the Jackson's re-releases and collections, they're far more respectful releases in quality and how they're handled than current estate product definitely agree so back back to the uh, motown 25 show like it was really great if anybody wants to watch it 
you know, uh, the, the way that I'd recommend getting it would be to access that DVD that's come out. It, it's, it's out in a few different versions. You can get one with like six, six discs in it or some crazy amount like that. Uh, we'll put a, we'll put the link to that, to that set in uh, the show notes, uh, grab it because there's a lot more on it than just Michael Jackson and the Jacksons. There's incredible performances by, uh, Stevie Wonder, Diana Ross. There's an, one of the most touching moments for me was when Marvin Gaye, he's, he's playing the piano and he's giving a spoken word history of uh, black music uh, over over this piano introduction before he goes on to perform What's Going On. Uh, there's a beautiful part where, um, actually on Marvin Gaye again, he's got a great album called I Want You. And the cover of that album is very famous for its, um, you know, art, for its art, the cover art. And uh, there's a segment in the, in, the, uh, in the show where that cover art actually comes to life and there's a dramatic performance of, of that cover art coming to life on stage. Smokey Robinson is incredible. And then, uh, of course, you know, you got to watch it for the Jacksons' performance. Live vocals, great, great dancing. It's amazing. And then at the very end, I, I mean, I watched the show for the first time in, in its entirety a few days ago and I didn't realise, but there's actually another... Uh, performance right at the very end of the show where all of the um, artists come on stage with Barry Gordy together and Michael Jackson actually comes on stage again with the brothers and uh, it's just a beautiful moment where they're all hu- uh, hugging and singing together and it's just like like they say in the show it's like one big Motown family on stage uh, it's it's a beautiful beautiful thing to watch so please get it follow the show notes and check out Motown 25 yesterday today and forever the only thing i don't know is what quality the show aired in i suspect that it's it was in higher quality than we've ever seen before because it was shown obviously in 2015 in the hd era Uh, i don't know if the show itself was hd but it's definitely the first time it would have been broadcast digitally Uh, so if any fans want to get in contact with us on facebook or on twitter and let us know what it looked like was it widescreen was it four by three was it hd what did it look like i would love to know uh, so let's move on to our finds of the week segment. We might kick off with you, Q. I know you've got an incredible find of the week. Uh, let's hear what it is. Okay, so I was fumbling around YouTube and Vivo during the week, and I came across a great little track. And why don't we just? Uh, how about we listen to a bit of it, and we'll see what you, if you've heard it, and what your thoughts are. Let's do it.
So it's a mashup of the Bruno Mars song, Uptown Funk, and Michael Jackson's track Jam, which opens the Dangerous album. And it's a pretty fun little mashup. It's uh, currently on Vivo. We'll put that in the uh, the show notes. Um, it's called Uptown Jam, and it's good fun. It's a well done little mashup, actually. Um, it's I don't know if it's a fan made thing, which is sort of half become official or not. Um, but it's good quality. It's a good little mashup, and and in some ways, the Uptown uh, Uptown Funk song has a sort of jam esque feel to it. I think uh, um, singer-songwriter-artist Darren Hayes noted that on Twitter recently and someone also shared this video with him, um, which I think he said blew his mind, that they could be mashed up so well together. It has got some horns and similar ways and, and the video is a great little video as well. Bruno Mars is a, is a talented guy. Um, he's got some other great songs recently like Treasure. That was a good song with a terrific almost Jackson-esque um, feel video as well but yeah uptown jam that was my find of the week and let us know what you think about it have a listen and uh let us know your thoughts i love it i've listened to it a bunch of times and i think it's really great it's uncanny how well the songs fit together i don't think there's any timing or pitch changes to be able to get them to fit but it's just a great little uh beat matched uh mashup that would go well in any kind of dj set i thought it was really fun have you heard it charles I have. I think Uptown Funk itself is a fantastic song um, yes. for today because, um, well, it's just catchy, it's fun, it's made with real instruments, it's, it, you know, it's, it's a great song. But at the same time, it is extremely derivative. Um, the, as you said, the horns are very similar to jam. There's a chant in it which is basically note for note identical to that uh, famous party song Oops Upside Your Head. And um, also the whole vibe of it and particularly the guitar lick is extremely reminiscent of uh, The Time, which was a a group. um, If you've ever seen the movie Purple Rain, uh, Prince had a a sort of a, a, a side project called The Time. Uh, fronted by Morris Day, and basically their whole catalogue comprises songs very similar to um, Uptown Funk. Uh, But I'm not really complaining because they've basically taken a lot of my favourite type of music and um, mashed it all together and, and churned out what is essentially just a remix of some very good songs. <laughs> it is a it's, very uh, princess-esque yeah. song, actually. I do. Yeah. I, hear, I actually hear more Prince in this track, Uptown Funk, influence than I do, say, Michael Jackson. Yes. It's a very Prince song, which is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. Prince is an absolute genius. And, and I think it's very cool how a lot of songs similar to this uh, have – you could almost say, oh, this could be a Jackson 5 song, or this could be a Jackson song, or this could be a Prince song. They've, they've sort of, there's a few artists out there that seem to be learning from the masters and incorporating some of the, the music influences from those um, masters and legends. Yeah, definitely agree. I hear a lot of Prince in there as well, and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. It's definitely a song that Mark Ronson has borrowed on a lot of uh, black history to create. Uh, and uh, I, I, I just love it. I think it's great. It's a lot of fun. It's one that should be listened to, though, I think, with all of that history in mind and influences uh, and inspiration too. What's your find of the week, Jamin? Uh, mine is another podcast, actually. Um, 
at the MJ cast, we, we don't want to be a little enclave that says, oh, we're the only MJ podcast out. Uh, there is some other good ones. And I know in my very first show, I said that there's not many, and that's still true. There is only literally a handful, probably less than three, uh, three or four current Michael Jackson podcasts out there. Uh, and another really great one is one by a guy called Jenkins, uh, and it's a show called Moonwalk Talks. Now, if you want to access it, you can go to Jenkins.net, that's J-A-N-K-I-N-S.net slash moonwalk hyphen talks. Uh, and that can be found as well on twitter.com slash moonwalk talks, but it is incredible. I've listened to a bunch of, uh, Jenkins moonwalk talks episodes now, and they are very, very entertaining. For example, the current one is, <laughs> uh, well, let's put it this way. Michael was notorious for putting out different film projects here and there in his career. And he came out with this one, uh, right at the, I think in 2002 or something like that, that let's just say wasn't the highest quality quality film Michael ever put out and it was called Miss Castaway and the Island Girls that he actually featured in and uh, Jenkins does a great Moonwalk Talks podcast episode on that movie Um, its conception uh, Michael's part in it he actually reviews the film and man, if you want to laugh, you got to listen to this this episode. He absolutely rips it to shreds. Uh, it's totally true. The, sh- the movie's um, not the greatest piece of work that Michael uh, got involved with. But uh, what Jenkins is so good at on his show is uh, he'll have one topic per episode and they'll do a really uh, a deep dive into those topics, one per episode. So it's a little bit different from the MJ cast where we cover all the latest news and then and then go into Michael's history here and there. Jenkins goes into every episode with one topic and then explains it really, really well uh, with a lot of humor as well. So if you guys want to check out Moonwalk Talks, please follow um, our link in the show notes and uh, check out that latest episode of uh, Michael Jackson's cameo appearance in... Uh, Miss Castaway and the Island Girls, especially if you want to laugh. Charles? Jamin, uh, Moonwalk Sorry. Talks is also on iTunes and you can subscribe on iTunes as well. It's a good podcast. I've listened to an episode and I'm downloading a few to take with me on vacation. So I recommend it. Absolutely. I um, I forgot to mention there on iTunes. I'm subscribed actually. I, I get their episodes as soon as they come out. I can't wait to listen to them. So yeah, definitely get in there and, and check that out. Um, Charles, did you have a pick of the week or a find of the week? Sorry. I didn't. I didn't know I was supposed to have one. That's okay. All I would, um, <laughs> all I would do is um, uh, direct people to Sil Maltella's book. Done. Does that sound all right? It's a great book. That sounds, Michael. That is great find of the week, which we talked about in episode one. No, well done. That's a good, good another good, good pick there. Absolutely. My find of the week actually last last episode was an article on um, on Seal Mortilla on his blog called Certain Powers, uh, which he put up defending his love of Michael. Uh, and I mean, I've read the book. Uh, it's it's incredible. And yeah, definitely check it out. Yeah, I think uh, is that that blog Certain Powers that would have been the one about the um, smear campaign that was launched after his book was released. Is That's that right. right. That's right. So he's addressing the smear campaign and he's saying, "Look, I am a Michael Jackson fan. This is why I am. This is how long I've been a fan." He's got photos of him attending uh, the History World tour in uh, Prague at Letna Park Stadium uh, in, I believe, 1996. 
Uh, and he even talks about some of those articles he wrote in the late 90s for King magazine. Uh, and it's a shame in a way that he had to come out publicly and prove to the world why he's a Michael Jackson fan. Uh, because that that's something that should just be assumed by the very nature of his writing and his book, which is incredible. Uh, but yes, that was my find of the week last week. Yeah, I think um, I've known Pete, uh, Silmore Tiller's name, as we all know, is Pete Mills. I've known Pete for about 10 years, and that um, smear campaign was just idiocy. It was just idiocy. I mean, um, as you say, he is a long-time fan. Who tri- he was at the Dangerous Tour. He was at the History Tour. He wrote um, articles for King Magazine. He was there at the This Is It announcement. Um, he's been a good friend of mine for a number of years, and uh, it was very distressing to uh, see his uh, book, which he really is so passionate about and he worked on so hard, um, sabotaged by a group of um, ill-informed and uh, malicious individuals um, and I fully support Pete and um, I would recommend that everybody downloads his book. Absolutely couldn't agree more. Great find of the week Charles. Let's move on to our fan interaction uh, sorry fan interaction section uh, and this will be probably our final major section of the show uh, but we have actually had a fan uh, just contact us prior to our show coming out today or being recorded today rather by the name of Denise Purcell on Facebook. Hello Denise. Uh, and Denise wants us to talk about a few little topics. Uh, one of them, again, uh, is a little bit heavy, but I think it's something we can probably um, get to the bottom of as a group here of, of uh, Michael fans. And uh, she wanted us to discuss uh, Joseph Jackson and his uh, treatment, I guess, and behavior. Um, sorry, the treatment of his children and his behavior when uh, his children were quite young. Um, maybe some of that physical and, and mental abuse that has been mentioned by Michael and other Jackson family members. Uh, Denise is saying that why don't the other Jacksons talk about um, Joseph's behavior and why is it only Michael that actually talks about that? Well, I just wanted to reply to that, that, to that comment because um, I wanted to point people in the direction of another great book if they haven't read it, and it's actually an autobiography uh, by Janet Jackson, and it's called True You, uh, and it's a, a fantastic book. It came out a few years ago, I think just after Michael died. I think it came out in about 2010 or something like that, but Janet actually, I'll read an excerpt from the book, um, a few little parts, but Janet actually talks about uh, how she was treated when she was young as well. And it says, uh, it was always difficult talking to my father who made us call him Joseph, not dad. He was a man of action, not words. And the truth is that we feared him. She goes on and talks about her um, actually being struck with a belt when she was really young uh, and even just some of that verbal abuse that she, she suffered as well as a child. So, you know, I mean, I... I definitely hear what you're saying, Denise, about it looking like Michael's all by himself defending himself against the way he was treated as a child. But I do think Janet's always kind of been by Michael's side and has also revealed some of that treatment in her life as well. Uh, and yeah, what, what do you think, Charles, about that, that topic? Well, interestingly, I, um, I actually interviewed Jermaine a few years ago and I asked him this exact question um, because Michael's descriptions of the uh, beatings did uh, it was a bit like a fisherman describing his catch it was like every time he told the story it got bigger 
Um, and it culminated, I think, in the Rabbi Shmuley Botek tapes, where he claims that um, Joe was like a sadistic um, individual who used to strip all the children naked, uh, rub them head to toe in oil, and then whip their faces, um, which, frankly, to me, does not sound believable, uh, although it's worth noting that by Michael's own admission, he was um, often... Uh, suffering from an altered mind state during that period because he was taking some heavy painkillers. Um, I, when I spoke to Jermaine about it, he did say that he believed that because Michael was uh, one of the youngest siblings and because he was a particularly sensitive child as he was an adult, um, he feels that Michael genuinely did believe everything he said about the abuse um, uh, but that it possibly was just down to his interpretation of it as a, a smaller, more sensitive and vulnerable child, whereas to some of the older siblings, it just seemed like, um, you know, what everybody else's dad was doing down the road. Um, as regards the fans' attitudes towards Joseph, I do find it peculiar that some of them hold this, uh, ongoing grudge. I mean, when Michael went to trial um, in 2005, Joe was with him pretty much every single day of that trial. Michael would walk in and out of that courtroom uh, linking arms with his father or holding hands with his father or with their arms around each other. It was clear that they were um, in a mutually supportive and loving relationship. Um, there was testimony in the AEG trial from Michael's own son, Prince, who said that when Michael felt um, intimidated by AEG workers, he told Prince, get my dad on the phone, get Joseph. Um, if you read the Bodyguards book, um, which is a very good book, actually, um, he, they talk about him asking for his father when he felt intimidated. Um, and they also tell a story about Joe coming round and trying to stage an intervention um, complaining that people are sticking needles in his son's arm and he wants uh, he wants them to stop. It's clear to me that Joe um, cared deeply for Michael and was a loving father. You know, he was of an era um, and a background where it was obviously normal to um, hit children. Uh, I don't necessarily believe everything Michael ever said about what Joe did to them. Um, and I think it's fair to say that there have been varying uh, levels of severity depending on which sibling it is that gives the uh, description. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I actually never published that section of my Jermaine interview because it did not fit into the overall narrative that I was telling actually in the end. But um, I may be able to dig it out and stick it on my blog. Um, so I'll let you know if I do that. Yeah, that sounds great. I think that, I mean, that was a really great insight. Thanks, Charles. And, and if you go on and continue to read some of the material in this Janet book that I'm currently rereading, True You, she actually mentions that it, you know, it wasn't just Joseph doing, um, you know, some of this treatment towards the siblings. It was actually them doing it to each other as well. She remembers being teased quite heavily by her brothers, including Michael, about her appearance. And uh, it seems to me like, uh, you know, growing up in the Jackson family could have been quite competitive and people could have been quite 
um, you know, aggressive towards each other in a, in a humorous way. I'm not really sure, but yeah, it certainly wasn't just Michael that was dealing with um, those feelings when he was growing up. It was also the other siblings as well. So I hope that answers your question, Denise. Um, I definitely think you should uh, check out some of the uh, things that the other Jackson family members have said and, uh, and yeah, get back to us if you'd like to about that. Um, Charles, can I just ask Charles a sure, question? Sure, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry, Q. That's okay. That's okay. Uh, Charles, was that interview with Jermaine regarding his book? It was, yeah. I met him in London when he released um, his book, which I think was in 2011. And then we did a follow-up interview by email um, in the weeks afterwards where I was able to ask him a few more questions. And then we did have a podcast lined up, actually. Um, his publisher, I think it was Harper Collins, anyway, his publisher... Um, trying to line up a podcast where myself and another writer called Deborah French were going to interview Jermaine for half an hour and it was going to be uploaded to their website. But we all were there ready to do it and the equipment failed and it never got completed. But that would have been um, a great interview. But yes, that it was, uh, it was all done in 2011 um, around the time that his book was published. Wow. Yeah, it certainly would be a great um, thing I for think, us to hear. I think Jermaine, I think Jermaine actually did address that topic in the book. It's, um, I'm pretty sure Jermaine talks about it in his book as well. So that's another book I would recommend. I actually um, have an autographed copy. I met Jermaine after they toured here for the Jackson's Unity tour, and I had the book. And when I met Jermaine, I asked if he would sign it, and he seemed surprised that I had the book. He, he was like, oh, you've, you've got my book, you've read it. And I said, yes, and I really loved it. It was, I thought, a very good book. I uh, had some incredible stories and uh, gave a, a lot of background for a lot of different things. Um, and, yeah, he signed the book and I was so happy because I really enjoyed it. I laughed, I cried. It was, it was I thought, a, quite a good book. And, no, I'm pretty sure Jermaine's book touches on that as well. So that would be – I think also you've got to look at it in contact, context from the era – it's an era that we can't really comprehend now because things are so different. And also the amount of interviews that Michael gave is probably a lot more than what other interviews and information from the other family members. So it's, of course it's going to seem a lot more that Michael talks about it in comparison to his other family. Absolutely. Very good book as well. We'll put Jermaine's book in the show notes. I think it's probably... It's fantastic. It is. It's really funny. And the funniest bit is um, his ongoing commentary on the um, kind of interfering Jehovah's Witness minders. That just had me in stitches all the way through the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so real. The thing that struck me about Jermaine's book is how real it is. Like even just that opening chapter of, I, oh. I think I, from memory, the opening chapter is about Jermaine being by, by his brother's side in a hospital room during one of those low moments uh, during the 2005 trial, isn't it? Wasn't it the, the, the day that Michael arrived at court in his pyjamas and there was a reason why that was he was in hospital because of back pain or something and Jermaine was there with his brother in that moment? Yeah, it's a very um, very stark opening to the book where it opens in those moments. Yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal book. 
We should, uh, we should, we've got some people to thank, uh, and we're going to be wrapping the show up now. So this will be the end of episode two. Um, but we'd like to thank for today's episode, Charles Thompson. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will be, uh, linking to your blog and your details in the, the show notes today. Um, but thanks for joining us in the middle of the night. Um, but Charles, Charles, hyphen thompson.net t-h-o-m-s-o-n.net is your website and it's got a lot of incredible information uh, and also links to your blog from that website as well so we'll put that in the show notes but thanks for joining us this evening charles and we'd also like to thank um jerome who actually uh jamin he it was our very first fan interaction online is that correct? that's right i think it might have been on youtube i put up something on youtube and, and jerome contacted us uh, in, a, in a number of different ways actually just to say uh how much he was enjoying our content and how much he wants to be on the show one day and <laughs> yeah so de- we forgot to mention him actually in the first show so i wanted to make sure we gave a special uh, shout out to jerome today so yeah, thank you to Jerome A. Horn. There was also uh, emails from Dre Taylor from Texas, Wendy Baker from Canada, uh, and Voice as One, which is a, a terrific website, and also on Twitter. They uh, they were great sharing information about us during the week. So thank you to Voice as One, uh, and also Cafe Fantasia, which is on Twitter as at Cafe Fantasia, C A F E F A. N T A S I A. They're actually um they're actually a great source of information about Disneyland Paris and uh, Captain EO. Uh, he runs a great Twitter account and has some terrific uh, videos up on his YouTube channel and a terrific Instagram poster. By the way, great Disneyland pictures for all those Disney fans out there. But he um, gave a great shout out to us during the week um, after enjoying episode one. So thank you very much at Cafe Fantasia um, and. If you recall in episode one, we put a call out for people to submit photos of their bedrooms or their Michael collections, and we had a number of people. So we had Ail Herter, who lives in Mexico City, Kathy Payne, and also Belinda O uh, share pictures of their collections. And Jamin, you shared some as well. Thank you for that. My pleasure. Still, if you've got more pictures, people, send them in. Send them in. We'd love to see them. I think the last person we were also going to thank today is, of course, uh, Damien Shields, great Michael Jackson uh, writer. You can access his website at damienshields.com. He wrote up a a phenomenal article on the MJ cast. If you want to find out more about our uh, reasoning and ethos behind why we're doing this show, please check out that Damien Shields article. We'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. Uh, Thank you very much, Damien, for writing about us. We love your work. We love everything uh, that you put out on your site about Michael. Uh, So thank you. I think our our very last segment today is just about how you can reach us and subscribe to us. There's a few different ways. Uh, The best way, obviously, is to access themjcast.com. On that website, you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Google+, uh, YouTube. We're all over the web. Uh, You can find uh, some links up the top right of the page about how to uh, subscribe to our show, either on iTunes or another podcast application of your choice. Uh, We are on iTunes now. Please consider leaving us a review on there so that we can get more visibility on that platform. Uh, And just in general, if you are struggling to understand what uh, podcasts are and how to 
sorry, how to subscribe to them and all of that kind of thing, please go to the link on our website. Uh, it's like, sorry, a, uh, a link up the very top in our menu that says subscribe. And if you click on that, you'll find a tutorial video on how to use podcasts, how to subscribe to them through different applications. And uh, hopefully that way you'll be uh, engaging with the MJ cast in the way it's intended to be heard as a podcast. Uh, if you have any thoughts, opinions, or feedback on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Please contact us at Twitter. Um, we are at the MJCast. If you go to facebook.com slash the MJCast, you can reach us there as well. We love as much fan interaction as we can get. And uh, I think that's pretty much it for our show today. Again, Charles, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. I've had a great time. We hope to have you back another time, Charles. We'd, we'd love to. We'll try and make it a better time that suits you, though, next time. <laughs> That's fine. It's only 1 a.m. Oh, my God. Only? Oh, well, you know what? There's an, We're actually uh, about to start another interview right now with Pete Mills. He's picking up where you're uh, leaving off. So 2 a.m. Yeah. England time. <laughs> crazy, yeah. crazy. Yeah. So thank you so much again, Charles. I think uh, that's a wrap for our show. Uh, we hope everybody enjoyed it. Please uh, make sure to tune into our future episodes. Thank you so much, everyone. And uh, keep Michaeling. Thank you.